Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for hearing our cries. Thank you that you listen to us, uh, you, you come to us, that you do not abandon us, you do not forsake us. Thank you that your grace is with us, your mercy is new every morning. God, as we come to you, as we come before your word, Lord, we ask that you would speak to your people. God, that you would open our hearts and our eyes uh, to see you, to love you, to know you more. Lord, thank you for uh, these, these psalms of lament. Thank you that we've been able to spend some time uh, digging in and, and seeing these cries. God, may they become the cries of our hearts as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're wrapping up our lament section, the, the fall section of our summer sermon series on the Psalms. We're doing three Psalms of creation, three on fall, three on redemption, three on consummation. This is the third one in the fall section. They've all been Psalms of lament. And again, the summer conversation on Wednesday night will be a great opportunity to dive in deeper to this topic. So again, would encourage you uh, to, come, to come out to that. But I hope these last three weeks have been uh, instructive and challenging, and good for our hearts. Um, It's not always easy to be vulnerable before God. It's not always easy to be vulnerable before other people when we're struggling. It's not easy to be honest about our doubts and our struggles in this world. But I believe that we are better for it. I believe we are better for it when we can be honest with, with God and others. And I believe that our gospel witness in the world, as we'll see in our psalm today, is strengthened when we learn to lament well and we learn to see God's grace in the midst of lament. I want to read a little bit of the introduction from Dark Cloud's Deep Mercy, the book we're going to be looking at on Wednesday night. We've shared a few quotes from here. Uh, This is from the introduction. It's a little bit longer, but kind of gives us a framework for what we're trying to accomplish in these sermons and in the summer conversation In the introduction, he has a section called Deep Mercy in Dark Clouds. He says, The aim of this book is to help you discover the grace of lament, to encourage you to find deep mercy in dark clouds. And he explains how the title of the book is taken from two verses in Lamentations that talk about dark clouds and deep mercy. He goes on, When the circumstances of life create dark clouds, I hope you'll come to embrace lament as a divinely given liturgy leading you to mercy. This historic song gives you permission to vocalize your pain as it moves you toward God-centered worship and trust. Lament is how you live between the poles of a hard life and trusting in God's sovereignty. Lament is how we bring our sorrow to God. Without lament, we won't know how to process pain. Silence, bitterness, and even anger can dominate our spiritual lives instead. Without lament, we won't know how to help people walking through sorrow. Instead, we'll offer trite solutions, unhelpful comments, or impatient responses. What's more, without this sacred song of sorrow, we'll miss the lessons historic laments are intended to teach us. Lament is how Christians grieve. It is how to help hurting people. Lament is how we learn important truths about God and our world. My personal and pastoral experience has convinced me that biblical lament is not only a gift, but also a neglected dimension of the Christian life for many 21st century Christians. 
a broken world, and an increasingly hostile culture make contemporary Christianity unbalanced and limited in the hope we offer if we neglect this minor key song. We need to recover the ancient practice of lament and the grace that comes through it. Christianity suffers when lament is missing. Christianity suffers when lament is missing. I think there's no better way to recover that ancient practice of lament and the grace that comes through it than by reading and meditating on the Psalms. Again, would encourage you to be spending time in the Psalms this summer. And as we come to Psalm 22 today, some parts of this song may be very familiar to many of us. It's a psalm written by David, a psalm that was experienced by David, and then quoted and experienced by Jesus during his crucifixion. So I'm going to read it. It's a little long. It's 31 verses. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to walk through it. We're going to look at it from David's perspective, and we're going to look at it from Jesus' perspective as we see the cries of two great kings. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. 
My, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down, shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the placement of this psalm in the Psalter is really interesting. You might be familiar with what comes right after it, the beloved Psalm 23, where David, the shepherd boy who became king, recounts the faithfulness of the Lord, who is with him and comforts him even as he walks through the valley of the shadow of death. And we can't just assume that these psalms were written chronologically, that David penned Psalm 22 in this horrible season of agony, and then at one point he experienced comfort from the Lord and wrote Psalm 23 and then never suffered again. That's not how life works for God's people. In fact, you might have a Psalm 22 day immediately followed by a Psalm 23 day and then vice versa, right? I know I have. Again, that Calvin quote that we looked at on the worship guide cover talking about contrary affections. Psalm 22, grief, right? Psalm 23 is comfort and grace. My hope for us is that as we walk through this psalm, that we will see this paradoxical truth of unbearable heartbreak and unexplainable comfort working hand in hand in David, in Jesus, and in our own lives. If you're a note taker and you kind of want to follow along with the the outline that I've got um, on that blank sheet, you could put David in the upper upper left-hand corner, Jesus in the upper right-hand corner, draw a line down the middle. We're going to be looking at five different things, five ways this psalm relates to, to David and relates to Jesus. The first thing of those five is forsaken by God, but. Forsaken by God, but. David says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. We don't know exactly what the situation is here. Some of the Psalms have have titles that give some clues. We don't know what David is going through as he's writing this Psalm. But it's clear that he's under attack He feels forsaken and abandoned by God, and he feels that God no longer hears his cries. If we know about David, we might ask, well, how can this be? David was a man after God's own heart, right? He's the leader of the people of Israel. So what's going on here that probably the most powerful man in the world at the time, potentially, is standing here saying, God, where are you, right? Why have you left me? Why am I being attacked by all of these people. 
When Joshua took over for Moses in Joshua chapter 1, the Lord said to Joshua, Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Then the Lord said, You shall meditate on the law of the Lord day and night, which we saw in Psalm 1, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and you will have good success. Right? We talked about that in Psalm 1, meditating on the law of the Lord, and all that he does, he prospers. Then we saw Psalm 10 last week. The psalmist saying, what's going on, God? The wicked are prospering. I'm seeking you. I'm not finding you. What's happening? So were these same promises to Joshua that God would not forsake him? Were they not also true for David as the king of Israel? But instead here of reading about him meditating on God's law day and night, which he probably was still doing, we read about him crying day and night, crying to the Lord day and night, and crickets, right? God is silent, and David is just saying, God, what is going on? Christian, you ever feel this way? I'm reading my Bible, right? I'm praying, I'm going to church, having my quiet times. Why does God feel so far away? Well, the truth is, and if you've, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've, you've probably learned this. It's not like a magic potion, right? You just put in a little Bible, you put in a little prayer, you put in a little church attendance, stir it up, poof. God is not a genie. We don't just manipulate him by trying to do all the right things and then he's there when we want him there. Again, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've probably experienced this strange paradox in the Christian life. That is, the more you grow in your faith and the closer you actually get to God, sometimes the farther away he feels, right? And that can be maddening. That can drive you crazy, But we can't let our circumstances and our emotions dictate the truth of who God is and how close to us he actually is. We see this in David's response in verse 3. He's saying, God, even though you seem far away and you're not hearing my cries, I know that you are who you say you are and I will trust in you. The last couple weeks, Bill and I have both quoted from the book Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy that his definition of lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. And that's exactly what David does here. You see the word that he says in verse 3? Yet. Even though it seems like God is silent, David says, yet. Yet you are holy. You are enthroned on the praises of Israel. That word literally means to be sitting as a king. He is enthroned. He is unshaken. He is unmoved by what is happening. And look at verses 4 and 5. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. David looks back and he roots his trust in the Lord in God's covenant faithfulness to the people from generation to generation. 
before David's time, up until his time, he looks back and he says, God, you have been faithful to my fathers, and I will trust in you. So this shows us that it's bigger than David. It's bigger than you and me and our little stories that we're living out here in this day, right? That's why I love reading church history, and I encourage people to read church history Go look back, see how God has been faithful to his people throughout the generations. I mean, the fact that we're even sitting here in a church building, worshiping openly as Christians with Bibles in our hands, is mind-blowing. If you look at the efforts to destroy the church throughout church history. God has been so faithful to his people. And we can't just sit here in our own little world and, and think it's all about us. We need, like David did here, to look back to praise God for his faithfulness and to know that he's going to continue to be faithful. And we're going to see that at the end of this song. This is the kind of trust that enables David and us to endure and to persevere when we are individually the object of scorn by a world, the world around us that hates us. Next thing, if you're taking notes, the second thing, despised by mankind but trusting in the Lord. This is in verses 6 through 18. Verses 6 through 8, there are some verbal attacks uh, that David receives. We're going to see those a little more closely uh, when we get to Jesus. But he's verbally attacked in verses 6 through 8. And then in verse 9, we see the, this great word again, yet. Despite all these things that people are saying, David says, Yet. It's kind of interesting to notice the two, the two types of statements that come after his yet statement in verse 3 and his yet statement in verse 9. In verse 3 and following, the yet statement was a statement of God's transcendence. That God is, God is high and lifted up. God is, in a sense, in a sense far away. He's transcendent. He's above. He's, he's other. Okay? But here, David is going to talk about God's imminence. So transcendence and imminence or nearness, closeness. He says, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. So it's not just this far off God who's sitting on his throne ruling the world while David sits here being attacked. He says, you have been with me my whole life, even from my mother's womb. Go read Psalm 139, which was also written by David, talking about how the Lord knows him intimately. And then David's plea in verse 11, be not far from me. He's saying, God, be the shepherd who walks with me through the valley of the shadow of death, especially in light of what he's going to say in verses 12 through 18, where he describes the physical attacks that he experiences at the hands of his enemies. And again, we're going to see that a little bit more when we get to Jesus. Third thing, cry for deliverance, verses 19 to 21. He says, don't be far off. Come quickly. Deliver my soul. Save me. He is crying out for God to deliver him. He is desperate. He is under attack. And then I love at the end of verse 21, it shifts from these pleas of what he's asking God to do to saying, you have rescued me. This is a perfect tense verb. We've, I've shared this before. It's something that 
happened in the past and it's got the, the line going off into the future. It's saying, God, you have done something and I'm going to continue to experience the effects of this going into the future. He says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. If you look at the footnote there in the ESV, it says for rescued, it says answered. The word can be translated uh, both ways. Um, another interesting thing about this uh, verse that I promised James I would get into the sermon. Um, in, in the King James Version, uh, it says, you have answered me from the unicorn. Um, so if people tell you that unicorns aren't real, tell them, go read Psalm 22. But it's not a picture of cute little fluffy animals and rainbows, Okay? It's of an animal with a horn that's coming at you to kill you, okay? It's of a wild oxen who's coming to gore you to death. And David is under attack. But again, he praises God for rescuing him, for answering him. Look back at verse 2. Oh God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. It's the same word that's used here for you have rescued or answered me. So he's saying, God, you're not answering me. But here he says, you have answered me, right? Again, and this is that crazy battle we have to do in our mind. God, where are you? But I know you're here, right? I don't feel you. I don't, I'm not experiencing you right now, but I know you're with me. I know you're good. I know you're faithful. And if you're in Christ, this is, this is how it is. It's this already not yet battle, Right? We know that God has rescued us from sin and death. We know that God has heard our cries. But then we sit there in our sin or we sit there under attack and we're like, God, where are you? What's going on? David praises God for his deliverance. And then in response to God's work of deliverance, he does two things. Again, if you're taking notes, this is the fourth thing first thing he does of these two things is he leads God's people in worship. Verses 22 through 26. Verse 22 is an appropriate response to God's salvation. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And then look at verse 24. It says, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. What a turnaround this is, again, from the first two verses. From, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To now God hears, and God does not hide his face. That is David leading the people in worship, leading the people to praise God for his faithfulness, and who he is, and what he has done for them. The last thing is that, he proclaims God's righteousness to the ends of the earth. And this is in verses 27 to 31. Ed Clowney, called, Ed Clowney he was a professor at uh, Westminster Theological Seminary. Uh, he wrote a book on the church, written a bunch of things. But I was listening to one of his old lectures on Psalm 22, and he calls this doxological evangelism. Doxological evangelism. Doxology is, is praising God. So, from our praises of God, the world hears the gospel. Doxological evangelism. That's what's happening in verses 27 to 31. Our corporate worship of God 
is a declaration to the nations of who God is. Okay? So evangelism is going out there and telling people, right? But it's also coming in here and singing God's praises and singing about his faithfulness and what he has done for us in Christ. That is a witness to the world about who our God is. I think for us this, this begins in our own lives, uh, it begins in our, our homes and our families, and again, we do it here on Sunday mornings. If you're new here or kind of just you know, visiting, you might look around and see all these kids and be like, why don't you guys have you know, the kids in a Sunday school program, like they're kind of making some noise and most of them are my children. But they are a part of what Psalm 22 teaches us about God's covenant faithfulness to our children. Look at verses 30 and 31. Posterity, or descendants, our children, shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. At Living Stone here and in the PCA, when we baptize children of believers, we ask a question to the congregation. We ask, do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents in the Christian nurture of this child? And part of that responsibility is doxological evangelism. It's worshiping God in such a way that the kids look and see, wow, that must be true. Look how much these people love Jesus. Look what God has done in their lives. In our worship, in the living out of the gospel, the gospel of grace, we live out the reality of what God has done for us. It was foreshadowed here in David, and then it's seen fully in Jesus Christ. So we saw David's experience. How do we see these same truths fulfilled in Jesus? So again, if you're Taking notes, going down on your right-hand side. Forsaken by God, but Matthew twenty-seven forty-six, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is something to wrestle with. How could the Father turn his back on his son? How could the son of God, who has been with the father for all eternity, how could he be forsaken by his father? Listen to what Calvin says about this. He says, As our Savior Jesus Christ, when hanging on the cross, and when ready to yield up his soul into the hands of God his father, made use of these very words, the quote from Psalm 22, We must consider how these two things can agree. That Christ was the only begotten Son of God, and that yet he was so penetrated with grief, seized with so great mental trouble, as to cry out that God his Father had forsaken him. As he became our representative and took upon him our sins, it was certainly necessary that he should appear before the judgment seat of God as a sinner. From this proceeded the terror and dread which constrained him to pray for deliverance from death. Not that it was so grievous to him merely to depart from this life, 
but because there was before his eyes the curse of God to which all who are sinners are exposed. Jesus bore the wrath of God when he died in our place on the cross, which is why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken as our substitute in our place for our sins so that we do not need to be forsaken by God. And that's the glorious truth of the gospel of God's grace. This is why we talk about penal substitutionary atonement and why we stand on this and why we will not flinch on this doctrine. Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins. It's penal. Substitutionary. He died in our place. And the atonement that he died to pay for our sins. It's not like he was just trying to be some good moral example. Someone had to die for our sins. And Jesus did. He stood in our place. He paid the penalty as our substitute. And not only was he forsaken by God, he was also despised by mankind. In verses 6 and 7, David talked about being scorned and despised and mocked. Isaiah used this same language in Isaiah chapter 53, 700 years before Jesus was even born. Read this already in our um, assurance of pardon, but I'm going to read it again. See the similar language here of what's going on with Psalm 22. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is not only foretold in the prophecy of Isaiah, but Psalm 22 was literally fulfilled by Jesus on the cross. Matthew chapter 27, verses 35 to 40, speaking of the account of the crucifixion. And when they had crucified him, pierced his hands and his feet, They divided his garments among them by casting lots. Saw that in verse 18 of Psalm 22. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. They surrounded him, right? And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, which we saw in Psalm 22, 7, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, again, Psalm 22, 7, saying, he saved others. 
he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. Which is a direct quote from Psalm 22 verse 8. For he said, I am the son of God. They mocked him and said, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. And they were right. Because Jesus did trust in the Father. He did trust in the plan that they had to save sinners. Right? He didn't back down. And his lament was a prayer in pain that was full of trust. The next thing that we saw in David was a cry for deliverance. David prayed that his soul would be delivered from the sword and that he would be saved from the mouth of the lion and from the unicorn, James. This is the one area, though, where there is not a direct overlap between David and Jesus. Jesus did not cry for deliverance in the same way. In John chapter 12, after Jesus began talking openly about his death, he said this, John chapter 12, 27 and 28. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He did not ask for the cross to be not a part of the equation, right? He said, Father, I have come to do your will. This is the purpose that I have come for. Not my will, but yours be done. He went to the cross. He bore our sins. He was pierced for our transgressions. And he cried out as the Father turned his face away. But the good news is that the grave could not hold him. Three days later, he rose from the grave, and the Father's face shined upon him, and the story of the world was changed forever. The deliverance and the redemption that God's people had been longing for since the fall, since the Garden of Eden, it was no longer a future hope. It was no longer something that the prophets foretold and that the people were still waiting for. The deliverer had come, and he had rescued them. It was a right now promise that Jesus had fulfilled. And just as David's response to God's deliverance was twofold, leading God's people into worship and proclaiming God's righteousness to the ends of the earth, so we see those two things in Jesus. Jesus leads God's people in worship. You might be like, what? That sounds weird. Well, in Hebrews chapter 2, it says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And he quotes Psalm 22, 22, the, the writer of Hebrews. So Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. And it says, Jesus speaking in Hebrews 2, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. So the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus sings the praises of God in our midst. So he's not only stood on the cross as our substitute, he now stands in the congregation with us, 
where we are invited to join him in singing the praises of God. Jesus is our worship leader. Amen? Then he proclaims God's righteousness to the ends of the earth. Verses 27 to 21, or to 31 in Psalm 22. There's some beautiful language in these verses. Uh, actually, starting in verse 26, there's language of eating, of, of feasting and worshiping, of being satisfied in the Lord, who is the king who rules over all the nations. And this is the message that Jesus sent his followers out into the world to proclaim. To proclaim the day that is coming. Right? A day of a coming feast. Where all the cries of Psalm 22 and all the other psalms of lament will be no more. Where we will worship and feast with our king forever. Where all the tears and all the pain will be no more. We proclaim it here, as I said, in our doxological evangelism. We need to hear these things. We need to be reminded of the gospel as Christians. It's not just something that needs to be told out there, though it does. It needs to start in here. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. And let us not miss the significance of this great psalm of lament in the proclamation of that message to the world. It's about a despised and forsaken Savior who did not get down from that cross and save himself. But he bore the wrath of God so that we might be saved and delivered from the bondage to sin and death. That we might worship God with him, our elder brother, and then be sent out into the world to declare his righteousness to the nations. Brothers and sisters, this is our hope. Let's pray. God, we thank you that in the midst of dark clouds, in the midst of times in our lives where we cry out these same words, where we feel forsaken, where we feel abandoned, where we feel like we just can't make sense of what's happening. God, we thank you that these promises that we've just looked at are true for us. They were true for your servant David. They were true for your son. And they are true for us as we are in him. God, help us to, to grab hold of that hope. Help us to live out that hope. Help us to proclaim that hope both here as we worship you and out there as we go from here. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.